And so then I find myself in this place where I have taken actions that pretty much torch my previous plans and intentions. And so I've got this, um, it's going to sound melodramatic, but let's go ahead and call it a crisis of identity. Senior year of college for Luke Brown was a mix of highs and lows. He got engaged to the woman who would become his life partner, but he also got rejected from every history graduate program to which he applied. He got back on track a year later, but ultimately let go of the PhD he thought he'd been destined for. Find out how sometimes adjusting your expectations and giving yourself grace to find a new identity can take a bit of time on today's Roads Taken with me, Leslie Jennings Rowley. Today I'm here with Luke Brown and we are going to talk about expectations and expectations we put on ourselves and where that leads us and how we come out the other side. So Luke, it was it's lovely to have you here. Thank you. Thank you. So we're going to start this the same way we start each of our episodes with two questions and they are these. When we were in college, who were you? And when we were getting ready to leave, who did you think you would become? Well, that second one's a doozy, so let me dodge it and uh, play with the first one a little bit. In some respects, you've heard this answer a lot, because like a lot of people, I found Dartmouth um, surprising. It was substantially more rigorous than my high school, and I had that very conventional small fish in a bigger pond than I'm used to kind of reaction. In my case, it is best short-formed by the time in the middle of the freshman fall that I thought I had failed my chem midterm. I was absolutely convinced because I had never had this tough a test in my life. People would stop me on the street and go, look, what's wrong? And um, it came back somewhere in the B range. And um, <laughs> and everybody laughs and um, some people give me a disgusted look. But, you know, it only came back in the B range because it's on a curve. I had done, in fact, awfully. It's just everybody else did, too. And that's not really a good thing. But I also was um, had gotten very, very few Bs in my academic life before Dartmouth. And I have never been so incredibly grateful to manage a B before or since. The other aspect of being at Dartmouth is that it is the most socially expansive part of my life. I, I was a very reclusive person in high school and earlier. And anybody who knows me will be scratching their heads going, what's he talking about? Luke was always sort of standing on the edge of the room in the party. And for me, this is socially expansive. It was just sort of a tremendous release to be in a place where nobody knew me. And so very many people were willing to take each other and themselves very seriously. And it was a wonderful time. When I left Dartmouth, I was in, a, in some ways in a bit of a disarray. I had gotten engaged a few months before the end of, of our time there. And that was, of course, fantastic. But I had also gotten ding letters from every uh, graduate school I had applied to, which is somewhat less pleasant situation. Because I, I had at some point decided that I wanted to be a professor of history if I ever grew up. And to be honest, I did not do a particularly good job of applying in this field. And so retrospectively, all those ding letters were not very surprising. But, you know, Udra and I get into a car at the end of, after my graduation, 
she's a 95 and had gotten her degree a couple terms earlier. And we're headed south because at that time, both of our families lived in Virginia, which was tremendously convenient. And I really didn't know what the heck I was going to do. And what I turned out to actually do is figure out all the things I had done wrong with the application process and apply again. And I, uh, I, I got some acceptances and I ended up uh, a, a year late, as it were, going to the University of Chicago. And in that summer before I left, Audrey and I got married in, in 1997. And that means that we're looking at 25 now. Congratulations. Yeah. And I'm going to be, you know, extremely pessimistic when I talk about aspects of my career track. And it's very worth noting before I do that, and probably after I do that, that I have been married to this wonderful, wonderful person for 25 years. And we have three amazing children. So uh, most of the time, these podcasts are, are, are very much about our professional lives. And I don't think mine is a very uh, happy story, at least not as I experience it. But that's an important part of my life story. But I, I, I need to remember that it is not the totality of it. So. Right. But they're they're so intertwined. And usually they are intertwined in the lessons that we learn ourselves and that we tend to pass on to others. So let's go back a little bit, though. So uh, it's senior year, and I'm actually unsure of the response time. So when are you hearing these rejections? Well, the rejection letters of... come in. Oh, heavens. When do the ding letters come in? Winter, pretty much. OK. Yeah. OK. And again, here's where you have the positive and the negative, the yin and the yang, as it were. The, I know I want to spend the rest of my life with this person, and I'm deciding I'm getting engaged, and that's all very positive. And then I feel like, oh, the other part isn't as well-conceived, and and really it gives you a, an entire term to either, at best wonder what's next and at worst wallow so which which side of that coin were you on at that point this is more of a wallow and it, this is also the period in which i um had to re I, I did not complete the uh, the the history major has a uh, honors program that involves uh, a bachelor's thesis and this is not something that i completed and so i had to restructure this in this term so i was actually doing quite a bit of wallowing and when we want to start talking about life lessons, one of them that's going on is that I don't know that I had the tools then to understand my reactions to what uh, I, I perceive to be going on in my life. And there's a limit to how much reflection and retooling and planning you can do under those circumstances. And it was absolutely an incredibly confusing period in my life because on the one hand, I was seeing this collapse of this great intention of mine. And, you know, re retrospectively, one should not call it a plan, because if I had actually planned it, I probably would have executed it better. And, and on the other hand, I have this tremendous affirmation. There is, uh, There are not words for how uh, comforting, encouraging, it is to have somebody who is interested in sharing your life. But one of the things that 
I actually need to take more seriously in my own uh, retrospection here is that this year-long period or so is one in which I did manage to retool. Because when we get to the fall of 1997, Odin and I are taking a U-Haul out to Chicago and landing in Hyde Park, and I'm starting at graduate school. And graduate school at the UFC was then and there for me academically, very much like Dartmouth on steroids. Mm -hmm. The same, oh my gosh, I thought I knew what rigor was, but I didn't. <laughs> at the end of that first year, I remember one of my um, classmates telling me, Luke, I didn't think you were going to make it through the first term. I thought you were going to have a nervous breakdown. And I, I'm looking at him going, well, I thought I was going to do too. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. But in that program, you write a uh, master's thesis in the first year. You complete some classwork, and then you start working on um, uh, some assisting professor stuff and working through, through towards your dissertation. So I got the, uh, the, the in-process master's and came back in the fall and started uh, working on more things. And then in the subsequent spring, something changes for me. And I don't really know what that is, but I can talk about the sort of signs I see of it. I, I, I feel kind of like I'm doing to myself what astronomers do when they find exoplanets. And, you know, I can't see that extra planet, but you see how that, that, that light blips? I know there's something there. Mm -hmm. So I... Uh, very late in the second year, I actually stopped working on my graduate school stuff. And then as time progresses, because I'm beginning to feel guilt and shame about doing that, I start hiding from people. Mm. And this got so bad that I would like go to grocery stores at weird hours and, and walk strange routes across the neighborhood. And I remember very nearly having a panic attack in an airport because I thought I recognized somebody. And, and this is way back before texting and uh, cell phones, and I was using the uh, answering machine to, to screen calls. And, you know, if this sounds like very unhealthy behavior, that's because I know it is. And I don't, to this day, fully understand it. And it comes to a point that it's starting to be a major stressor point in our marriage. And at some point, Odra comes to me and says, you know, I, I need to understand what's going on. You need to know what's going on because whatever is going on isn't sustainable. I have no idea how that conversation goes. I don't really remember it other than a um, right. markedly unpleasant conversation when you get right down to it, because in part, one of the things that I have to recognize by the time we have this conversation is that whatever else is true of me, I am no longer a graduate student. Mm. I haven't been there for a very long time, and I haven't taken basic adult uh, steps for exiting those relationships. And so then I find myself in this place where I have taken actions that pretty much torch my previous plans and intentions, and they go right to my definition of identity, because you, 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 like a lot of people, I put a lot of weight into my professional background as my identity. And so I've got this, um, it's going to sound melodramatic, but let's go ahead and call it a crisis of identity. Um, mm -hmm. I, I don't have better words for them that, that even though I don't like the melodrama. And 
ultimately, I um, I start at least getting out of the house and um, uh, becoming econ- more economically productive in the sense of getting a temp job. And eventually, I got a uh, a, a real job, which was really awful. And it's a real job because it was not temporary. It was in every respect an absolutely awful job. And I was in the awful job for six months, pretty quickly started sending out resumes again. And this was a difficult period because I had felt like I had burned all my bridges and didn't know that there was anybody I could go to. Retrospectively, this is almost certainly untrue. Had you made a formal withdrawal from Chicago or had they asked you, where are you? What was that relationship like real in reality? At various points, people did try to ask me, hey, what's going on? No, ultimately, I just sort of wandered away. I am a lost child from the University of Chicago. And in point of fact, I never cleaned that up. <laughs> well... Maybe there's a statute of limitations. I don't know. Oh, yes, there actually right is. <laughs> <laughs> Did you start your undergraduate career thinking you might be a science person, a chemist, perhaps? Yes. I'm not a chemist. I always wanted to be some kind of academic. I don't know quite where this comes from, but I love the idea. I remember when you applied to Dartmouth, they said, what's the highest degree you want and what field do you think you might study? And I popped out PhD, and the two fields that I said I might study were physics and English. Hmm. And that didn't survive very long. I don't know that I ever took a physics class. I did not find the chemistry department terribly welcoming. I felt like a lot of the professors had the attitude that they might be interested in you if you managed to survive orgo. And I didn't have a lot of respect for, for claiming that Chem 10 was an honor section and treating it like a weeding class. Okay, fine. They weeded me out. Yeah. And that sort of seems to have spread over to the sciences. I ultimately picked history in part because I really liked my class in classical Greek history. And it's actually through the classics department and not through history, but it was a great class. And I was attracted to some of the same things that back in high school had attracted me to English, which and part of it is is just the narrative. History is full of these bonkers stories. They really are. There's also this sense of, you know, can you get to why the heck is this actually happening? What actually drives that? There are all these little levers. And with history, it's it's very difficult to, you know, find those levers. And you can never put it into lab and figure out if you're actually, you know, even close to right which can be a little on the frustrating side. Which is much what happened to you, actually, at various times, right? So early on, you were getting these ding letters, and you did kind of figure out, oh, okay, I didn't play these applications right, and there was a bit of the, you know, understanding what drives it. But the why is this happening comes back and back and back, right, Right. for you. Well, this is also one of the things I learned in uh, the, the, the UFC. The, where I was and with the people I was working with there were very wide-driven. And I don't think this is universal, but it is absolutely true of their definition of history is don't go around collecting facts like an antiquarian, which, by the way, I actually rather enjoy doing. But figure out you know, what, what has changed and why. And when you get right down to it, that is the kind of thing I really enjoyed about my studies. And, you know, I can go off on a hobby basis 
these days and be leading anthropology or archaeology and using those same skills and really enjoying it when you can see how the authors of the paper or the book are, are trying to engage the, well, yes, yes, we, we've laid out our facts, but what the heck is it that this actually means and, and, and why is it important? I had this great book I read a couple of years ago about prehistoric archaeology in Minnesota, since I'm right here. I finished it up and turned to my middle son, Alex, and said, I, I think you should read this book, because at that time he had gotten quite interested in socialism, partially, I think, to annoy some of his friends. And, and he looks at the title and he says, why, Dad? And I said, because it's really all about how we don't have to live in a capitalist society and we're capable of building social structures that are actually egalitarian and are sustainable uses of our ecology. It's like, it says it's about prehistoric archaeology. Well, yeah, that too. But it's also about the other thing. And I think, Luke, you're kind of putting your finger on something I've been thinking about, which is, so there's the content and the process. And that's with history. That's with any narrative. That's with mm -hmm. any life, frankly. And you have lessons in both that you are now in a position to be handing down to your three children. Yes. You have three kids? I have three, three kids. kids. And so you kind of had what you've termed to me as kind of a failure in navigating the, the graduate program. Yes. But you ultimately have come out, you've had a career, and you have space and time in your life to be thinking about the big whys and both process and content. So I'm wondering if if you put it in those perspectives, like the tools of your trade that you have been trained in, what comes up for you when I frame things that way? Well, you know, I think you're going for the, well, what is it that you're telling your kids? And this is actually a little on the difficult side for me. I mean, what I tell my kids that touches on this aspect of my biography is, you know, things about reaching out to people and asking for help. I regard that period of my life, the end of graduate school and before I got into a, at least ultimately economically sustainable employment, as a failure, as a extremely painful failure, and as a largely inexplicable failure. And that's really problematic because, you know, when I look at new challenges, I have in the back of my head a failure narrative. And you can probably put together how that sort of thing works. And so what I try to get for my kids is so that they won't build this narrative in the first place. And a lot of the ways in which I got myself into these situations are mysterious to me, but a lot of them you can see would have been easier if I had asked for more help or taken more help or just looked somewhere else. So, uh, like, I, I talked about how when I realized I had left graduate school, I believed I didn't have anybody I could turn for help. That's almost certainly untrue. Yeah. Now, I don't know enough to know, oh, I should have done exactly this or that. And to a certain extent, 
you know, 20 some years ago might not matter. But it does matter in terms of, you know, what can I tell Thomas, who I just took to college a couple of weeks ago? Um, you know, he is a freshman uh, at RPI now. What can I tell Alex, who will graduate high school in two years? What can I tell Eliza, who's in elementary school? And I can tell them, you know, the basic things about not trying to do everything alone. And no matter how big a problem it is, you, you can always come to me and these sorts of things. But I think I can also say to them and to uh, others that I know sometimes that's actually not good enough. I heard all of these things growing up. Hmm. We told each other these things. And when push came to shove, I, I didn't believe them. Mm -hmm. And I don't really know why that is. There's also actually a fairly good chance that one of those kinds of help I should have looked for many decades ago might have had to be actually medical treatment for anxiety. It's very difficult to say about something that is 20 or more years old, and I know my memory is playing tricks on me with some aspects of this. <laughs> right. But that's a form of help that really wasn't on my radar. And in many ways, I am still processing this because I kind of need to get it out of my self-perception. I need to get that failure narrative to not color my existing challenges. Yeah. Um, it needs to not come up when I'm running a project at work. And yet it is quite present to me. So. Yeah. And I mean, the f failure in, in a word, like really comes from not meeting expectations and whether those are externally constructed or our own. And so much of our collective past in college or, or even the ensuing years, really, it's have we measured up, right, to whatever goal it was that we had in our mind, or as you said earlier, identity that we had placed on ourselves consciously or unconsciously. And I mean, it kind of harkens back to that chemistry grade, right? Like you thought you had failed. Yes. And yes. you, in your mind, you had. Yes. Because it wasn't up to a standard that you assumed someone had for you or for the work itself intrinsically, like it should just be perfect because there's a right answer. Well, when you get right down to it, a standard that would not have applied anyway, that, that, that much I remember about that. But I have appreciated so much uh, the examples of the podcast I have heard so far, in part because I have heard about other people coming up with things against expectations that they couldn't meet or weren't theirs or decided they didn't want anymore. And, you know, a lot of these narratives go, you know, oh, my God, what am I doing with my life? Or why the heck do I want to do this with my life? And, uh, you know, a, a lot of these people have, from my perspective, a, a, a completed narrative arc where they, they, they can present having learned these lessons. And I think I am still learning these lessons. I think I'm still working on that. But I also know I'm not, um, I'm not alone in this respect. I was talking to someone at the reunion who told me, that he is just now, after 11 years of working on it, beginning to come to terms with not having the professional life he wanted. And I, I, I said something to him that I hope came across as, 
I know how you feel. And then immediately said, and that's why you won't hear me on Roads Taken anytime soon. <laughs> well, you haven't heard me be interviewed and a number of people have asked me. I think we are all on, you know, the path um, and some get there faster than others. And some were entrenched in those expectations, however unreasonable they might have been more than others. And so it's going to take us a little bit more time. Yeah, no, it's um, it's something I'm working on. It's actually, in some ways, very much akin to a, a, a grieving process because I lost a, I lost a self-identity. And in some ways, I haven't really built it back up properly. Uh, there, there's this part of me that thinks, yeah, okay, this is this is a job. And I don't have the thing in my head that held that place when my job was going to be my dream job. You, you, you know, you've heard before people who say, you know, passion is just not going to get you your job. And no, I, I don't turn out to get to do what I love. This is not entirely fair. I play with SQL for a living and it has some really fun aspects, but partially I thought it might be useful to somebody to hear not only, you know, did I come up against these, uh, expectations. You, you, you've heard a lot of people who had a crisis somewhere in their 20s or their 30s. But not only did I hit that, but I'm still working on it. Yeah. And I think you're right. You're so right about identity being so hard to get rid of and that it's almost a grieving process and that it's nearly impossible to let go of an identity until you start building a new one, a different one. And if you're has if one is hesitant to say, I know what that looks like and I'm gonna pursue it, or I'm just gonna build, you know, layer by layer and figure out who the identity is, it's a really tricky process um, that does take time and will take time. And I do think that there are those of us out here who are probably in the same boat and are very happy, Luke, that you can be out there as the other classmate that you met this summer are saying, yeah, this stuff takes time sometimes. And I mean, hope you feel as though, you know, you can take a little solace knowing that there are others out there and give yourself the grace to say, okay, well, this is just an extended period. And I think you do know that there will be another side of it. I hope you do know that. And I just, I really appreciate your sharing it with us. Well, thank you for the opportunity because I, uh, I came to think that this might be a very useful thing for me to try. And I appreciate you giving me the space to try it. That was Luke Brown, who continues to hone an eclectic set of interests and currently lends his talents to help organizations use technology to operate more effectively. While he's continuing to figure out who he'll be when he grows up, he's working on putting his three kids on paths of their own. He lives with them and his wife in Minneapolis. We're so appreciative for our guests who have come on the show to tell their stories thus far, and for those of you who keep listening. Thank you for following and subscribing, rating and reviewing, and letting others know about the wisdom that can be heard in these moments of reflection each week. Don't forget, you can find the full archive and a handy contact us form at roadstakenshow.com. And be sure to come back next week to hear from another great guest and me, Leslie Jennings Rowley, on the next episode of Roads Taken.